a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on video nasty? Oh, you've seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. seems almost ridiculous to have a podcast dedicated to Friday the 13th. There are so many of them already out there. The film is uh, so famous and uh, so universally known. Of course, back in 1980, it wasn't. And indeed, it's kind of the things that Friday the 13th is famous for now, the hockey mask and Jason looming up with a machete, weren't actually part of that original film. But it also seems right that, considering the sheer number of early 80s slashes that uh, the podcast covers and has covered, will continue to cover over the months, that we deal with one of the films that was at the heart and beckoned in the slasher boom. I frequently talk about Halloween being the film that, that does this, but that's, and indeed that's true. Halloween shows that it's, uh, it's, pop, it's, 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 uh, it's possible, and uh, people run off and start planning to make slasher movies based off Halloween. But I think it's fair to say as well that Friday the 13th really set in place the template for slasher films. And when we look at films like Madman or... The Burning, for example, which is the most obvious one. We see an attempt to uh, take this very specific template and superimpose um, their own version on it, basically. Um, whether that, you know, both of those films I've just mentioned there are early 80s campfire uh, slasher movies. And Friday the 13th, as well as being massively successful, spawning numerous sequels and a um, reboot in 2009, along with the Freddy vs. Jason crossover movie, which is its own thing, um, becomes a a movie that is um, entrenched in horror culture. Um, um, Jason Voorhees becomes a... um, a horror icon in the same way that Freddy Krueger does or um, Michael Myers does or the uh, pinhead from from Hellraiser. He becomes this kind of um, nostalgic talisman for what that period in time's horror was. So it's easy to forget, therefore, that this film, the original from 1980, doesn't feature Jason, apart from very brief moments at the end. And instead... Features known hockey mask as well. The roots of Friday the 13th come from a director and producer, Sean S. Cunningham, who, as we've already spoken about before, who made uh, The Last House on the Left with Wes Craven. And its influences, rather than the films it went on to influence, actually come from Giallo of Italy. And this is a murder mystery with uh, voyeuristic tracking shots from the killer's point of view a knife, and uh, explicit deaths all the way through. 
it's meant to titillate you a little bit, excite you, and also give you a payoff of fountains of gushing blood. All thanks to special effects expert, expert Tom Savini. Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? One. Teenagers go and with counsellors to move into Camp Crystal Lake. Now, in 1957, a young boy drowns there. And there's two murders as well in 58 of two counsellors. There's been some fires. The water was poisoned in 62. And the place has a dodgy past. These counsellors, along with the owner, a guy called Steve Steve aiming to refurbish the cabins and facility ready for opening. Instead, they, um, as they split up and try and find out what's going on, they realise that they've actually been cut off from the outside world, the phones have been cut, and it, the likely suspicion falls on, a, on, on the guy Steve, who, who's the owner of the camp. It becomes clear, however, that it's not Steve, it's another character, and uh, they are committing revenge for the death in 1957 and that person is not Jason Voorhees but his mother Pamela 
I think it's safe to say that it's okay to give away the ending of Friday the 13th, if only because it does it so explicitly in the original screen. Indeed, the fact that Jason uh, in his uh, hockey mask doesn't appear in this film, apart from a, a shock scare at the end, is almost um, part of a, a, a canon-like meme as much as the rest of it. And although in a giallo, who the killer is does provide some additional enjoyment, Friday the 13th is not concerned with how you feel about uh, who's who's the person doing the killers killings? It's just a vehicle, really, a vehicle for well, sex between you know young teenage, te- no, not young teenage, but young people, teenagers of, a, of an appropriate age, and um, and death with um, Mrs. Voorhees running around um, with various stabbing implements and killing people. So Friday the 13th was produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Now, he'd obviously said before, he's worked before on Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left, and we've spoken about it. Now, it's fair to say he was inspired by Carpenter's Halloween, which is why I basically say Halloween kicked off the slasher boom, although a lot of the influences for the rest of the films that come afterwards do come from this one. He, what he wanted to do was move away from the kind of griminess and... Um, grit and kind of unpleasantness and, and, and exploitation of Last House on the Left, a film that has caused him, them, him and Wes problems to get work late, as they moved on from it because it was just so grim. Uh, so what he wanted to make was a horror film that was more of a roller coaster ride, something that was shocking and exciting, visually striking, but, you know, something that makes you jump out of your seat rather than kind of feel uncomfortable in a different way. The script was written by uh, screenwriter Victor Miller, who's probably better known really for TV work and um, won some awards for daytime Emmys. And it was originally called um, A Long Night at Camp Blood before um, being rewritten to Friday the 13th. Um, again, a nod towards you know a, a holiday as such, a notable date. And indeed, Cunningham rushed out and placed an advertisement in Variety using the title Friday the 13th before the script had even been finished. The reason was that he thought that maybe somebody else might already own the title, as there was numerous um, slasher films already being created, um, and you know the people looking to create holiday violent films, and they so he wanted to kind of get it out there already and make sure you know he had the logo out there. So the film, before it was even really completed as a script, was already that iconic logo created by a New York advertising agency. The big block letters of Friday the 13th smashing through a pane of glass. Something that will be used again and again in the uh, Friday the 13th um, advertising over the years. And probably most notably um, when it went 3D. Sadly a film we won't be covering on this podcast. There was, however, already a film called Friday the 13th, The Orphan, which had been mildly successful, so they had to pay them off. Cunningham delighted in his concept that it wasn't a a big, bulking man going out there killing people, but in fact somebody's mother who was committing these crimes for the love of her child. And most notably, of course, the shock ending at the end when we see Jason rise up from the water in something that in Carrie makes a lot of sense, but probably not so much here, was actually Tom Savini's idea. Savini had been brought on to do a lot of special makeup effects. He's already created quite a stare with uh, 
George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead, and it was known as a, a considerable uh, expert in makeup effects on low-budget films, so was happy to do it. It was his idea, and originally it was kind of designed to kind of replicate, as I mentioned, that, that carry jump at the end of that film. Um, originally the plan was just to have it kind of like a scenic kind of, you know, Tweakly piano kind of ending with her on the lake, um, but um, the jump scare, although not making a huge amount of sense, I've seen Carrie explains that it's just a dream. Um, does, however, ironically, kind of trigger um, where we go moving forwards with the series, in which uh, for some strange reason Jason's alive and all that kind of stuff. But we'll get to all that. We'll get to that when we get to uh, part two later on in the year. So the film was made for a low budget, $550,000. So enough, but, you know, certainly not spectacular. So they had to go cheap. So they found um, some decent actors. Indeed, they were lucky with the actors they got. Kevin Bacon is in it and uh, gets a great little death scene in there. And Adrian King as well. These were people who had already worked on soap operas and therefore, you know, had experience and could do the job, as it were. This isn't like uh, when we talked about the burning and they were basically just scouring New York... Um, drama schools for everyone they could get their hands on. Alice Hardy, that, that role was um, actually set up as an open casting call, literally designed just for publicity's sake to try and get drum up interest in the film, and obviously the target market as well, young people who would want to go and see the film when it was made. They were happy with um, the fact that it was, although you know it was an open audition, anyone could audition. The actual fact is that obviously that role goes to Adrian King, who'd already kind of appeared in uh, in work in the past. In a number of um, you know um, soap opera roles, of course, it does also feature Mark Nelson as well, who um, you know far more known these days as a as a Broadway actor. Um, this was actually his uh, first film role. He remembers back saying that he he wasn't aware how bloody the film was going to actually be before he took took the job. What that role is for Nelson is though the uh, the character who's always like the jokey kind of insecure guy who uh, ends up being a uh, Killed off in a, you know pretty early on in these films normally you know hey guys what's going on that kind of thing you know so um, and you know it, it, indeed it's true that uh, Halloween and Black Christmas which is obviously another early proto slasher um, doesn't have an equivalent probably the only equivalent would be Margot Kidder's character in Black Christmas but it's not the same it's not the same so the film was shot in and around. Um, New Jersey in September 1979 and it was actually some of the camp scenes were actually shot on a working Boy Scout camp at Camp Nibi Bosco uh, in New Jersey in Hardwick and the camp still operates a summer camp to this day Tom Savini was said was hired based off his work from Dawn of the Dead um, from 78 the Romero film uh, we'll be talking about that later in the future episode as well that film and um, he was known for um, these quite impressive effects, in particular um, an axe wound to the head and um, the arrow that goes through one character's throat and obviously the, the famous decapitation scene at the end. The music was created by um, Harry Manfredini, who, um, you know, film composer and jazz soloist. I mean, yeah, let's be honest with you, he's more fam- most famous for Friday the 13th and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the incredibly... Um, the notorious and infamous 
uh, sounds that uh, that accompany that. Um, it's notable that they don't use an awful lot of soundtrack on that. But he also made the, the music to House, um, the Wishmaster film, and Slaughter Hide from 1986. So he does have other film credits that are notable, but obviously most famous probably for this one, in truth. So, the decision was made to only play music when the killer was actually present, so it wasn't like, you know, a, a, a fake jump scare and stuff like that. So, there's even moments when um, there should be big scares used by music, but they're not there. They don't use music to, to emphasise the frights, uh, which is very much to the film's credit. But um, it doesn't feel as cheap, basically. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, criticism for slasher films moving forwards that you know, just to kind of keep the the pulse race, and even when they haven't got budget or um, attempts for, for 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 violence, you know, or, or, or wish to kind of kill somebody at that in that moment, they kind of just do a jump scare to kind of keep the audience going. You know what I mean? Keep the thrills coming. So what it does is basically use a similar kind of. Musical attempt that is uh, done like through like Jaws, I suppose, the John Williams score in Jaws, where the presence of the shark is emphasised through the music, even though the shark can't be visible at that time. Indeed, our killer is not really visible for huge amounts of the film, although we see a lot of uh, shots through the eyes of the killer. But as I say, I mean that that music is is deeply iconic. It's fair to say, and um, and as such, is is always notable. The film was um, actually uh, subjected, to, subjected to a bidding war as well when it when it when it was made. Um, obviously, people clear that it would make a lot of money. So Paramount Pictures, Warner's, and United Artists all got in there and tried to get it released. Paramount actually purchased the domestic distribution rights for one point five million. Bearing in mind the film made was made for five hundred fifty thousand, that's pretty good business. It was considered low risk at the time, and. Um, even with um, the additional cash, it certainly uh, did very well. Indeed, it made box office of close to $60 million. So even though they spent $1.5 million on it, spent half a million marked in it, the film made five, and best part of $6 million just in its opening weekend domestically and finished domestic on $40 million. It was a reasonable success, the 18th highest grossing film that year. But, you know, this is a year that had the fog prom night dressed to kill in the shining in as well. It was Paramount's second most um, di- uh, popular film of the year, only second to Airplane. The film, as a release from a critical point of view, was not seen particularly favourably. Um, its violence was criticised. It's, um, if so, it, you know, silly. It was basically seen as being a bit silly. Um Although the musical score was frequently highlighted, and I think the film does compare unfavorably to John Carpenter's Halloween, which was almost certainly its nearest comparison at the time. It's hard to kind of get away from that as well. Um, Carpenter's Halloween is, <laughs> is 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 a different beast to Friday the 13th, and although probably not as fun a ride, and I'd argue probably there are be- there are more better Friday the 13th movies now you know 3 is excellent 4 is good 6 is good I mean you know I can bang Jason X on to be brutally honest with you um, and Halloween has Halloween 1 2 a 3 which isn't really a Halloween film from in any meaningful way and then you start falling off a cliff and then it depends how you feel about the Rob Zombie films um, and then obviously but then again the remake for Halloween or the new Halloween films a lot better I suppose 
But anyway, I'm 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 going off piece there. But it's certainly it's you know when you compare the original Friday the Thirteenth to the original Halloween, they are you know they are, I'd argue they're trying to do very different things for starters. You know, Hall- Cops Halloween is very much a mood piece, um, and it's I mean it's so brilliantly shot and framed you can really see you know the craft of carpenter you know every shot is just incredibly well structured friday the 13th isn't that but what it does have is savini firing all cylinders a fantastic score some great shots and um some um some some genuine like scares i mean you know and that that twist at the end to be fair to it is is good it's almost certainly true that uh, it reflects a, a very particular time in american culture um, these are kids, teenagers, I should say, who are um, experimenting um, with sex, some with drugs. They're kids being kids, you know, and um, the morality tale which sits in it, which does also happen in Halloween, to be fair, is far more pronounced, and the um, the violence and um, it's far more, you know, explicit. It's very much designed for you to watch it. And to take a certain amount of pleasure in, uh, particularly with its um, rather ghoulish um, point of view shots of um, stalking and slashing. Um, now, obviously, you know, the p- p- point of view shot in this, we see a lot in Jello, uh, like a lot in Jello in the, in the 60s and 70s. And obviously, it's also emulated in uh, Halloween. But that feels a little bit more of a, a trick for to reveal that the you know, the, the, it's a young boy at the start of the film. In this, it's very much you know, you, it's a point of view shot in a almost uh, you know, it's it's to get the heart racing a little bit, you know, stalking and slashing young people, and um, it, there is an unfortunateness to its uh, politics, maybe a little bit that although um, Pamela is a is is an equal rights murderer of her teenagers. Um, she uh, does seem to, for some reason, savour killing the women a little bit more, and the kills for the women are slightly more explicit and are slightly, uh, slightly more sadistic than the ones for the men. On its plus side, though, this concept that the killer is a is the mother is um, is good. It, it's always been good, and it's something that kind of has been overshadowed by Jason's um, legacy. Um, you know, I mean, he's uh, he's uh, he's you know, everyone thinks of that hockey mask now. I mean, and and the the hockey mask is referenced right from Asia, and you know, right the way across. That that hockey mask is is very much you know the slasher killer icon, iconic thing. In the same way, Pinhead is, or or the um, the white painted white Shatner mask in Halloween. You know, they are by their very nature integral to horror. So. Friday the 13th creates this template for slasher films and indeed creates what we've discussed time and time again, the slasher boom. One of the reasons why uh, people, are, you know, the, the video nasties is a thing at all is that these are films that uh, focus on young people being carved up. And um, it's fair to say that a huge chunk of the films we have spoken about and will continue to speak about are in that 80s slasher mould. It's interesting, though, because I think it's fair to say that Friday the 13th, although a good a good film, you know, it's good, it's well made, it does its job, it has some good ideas, it works well. Is that a, Obviously, as we said, it compares badly to towards Halloween, but also probably is not one of the better slasher films generally. Um, 
But, you know, it's in the top 10 maybe, but the whole top 15 if, if you want to be. But it's not, you know, it, it's not even the best Friday the 13th film, to be brutally honest. In a sense, therefore, and, and probably because of this, Friday the 13th um, isn't really as on, on the ball as um, a lot of other slasher films. It doesn't have the the intellectual clout that some do. It's um, It's a bit of a... A, a New Jersey brawler kind of film, you know. It's uh, you know, it's it's uh, it likes a fight, and um, you know the film's messy. It's gory. It's got some interesting ideas, but it's basically a film that you know is very you know it's primal almost. It's a, it's a bit of a fight, a bit of a brawler. You know, it wants to, what it wants to do is kind of capture capture attention by hook or by crook, and it wants to thrill you. It's a you know, it's a fucking getting pissed on a Friday night grabbing him against a wall kind of fucking film what it isn't is you know uh, you know, a, a, a rueful meditation on, on, on youth or um, the love of a mother what it is is a fucking knife wound into the side of the head it want, it's an, it's, it, it is a, as Cunningham wanted it to be a roller coaster ride and as we've said it's still massively influential and remembered to this day Okay, so Friday the 13th was um, released through Warners in the UK. Um, so originally the film was um, released uncut on pre-certificate rental video in 1982. The film was seized apparently by police and Warner switched to the R-rated version of the film instead. So that comes out in 1983. Um, and now that cut is basically of 10 seconds and they feature whiteouts. Um, so that's uh, Annie getting a floats cut, uh, Kevin Bacon's girlfriend getting an axe, um, the spear going through Kevin Bacon, and the decapitation at the end all are trimmed. That's in, a, and that stays the same. And that's the version that we see in 1987. The film gets released uncut um, in uh, the UK. I mean, indeed, it was uncut already in in 1980 as a cinema release, but just this R R version that we get uh, released in '83 as it kind of as um, Warner's kind of plays it on the safe side by the looks of it. Um, bearing in mind, obviously, films that had you know been passed cut or uncut and then gone to video had already been you know caused problems with the police for the video nasties panic. Um, the version has been released uncut in the UK on a DVD since you know early noughties, um, and is available now in an eight-disc uh, Blu-ray version from Amazon, uh, which came out last year. In the US, obviously, we've got uh, the R-rated version for the theatre, and then again DVDs and Blu-rays available of it uncut and unrated uh, in the states. The film is available everywhere now. Uh, if you want to watch it, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lovely, there's an eight disc DV, a Blu-ray set if that's that's where you want to be. But also, you know, it's available on things like Now TV, Sky Cinema, Amazon Prime. You know, you can I can literally watch it now on my on my Virgin Media box. It's it's it's, it's ubiquitous. So um, and reasonably priced, I'm sure you can get hold of a copy very easily if for some bizarre reason. You've not got around to it yet. If you're the type of person who's listened to this far into the podcast, but uh, but not watched Friday the Thirteenth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, 
Friday the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday the 13th, rated R. Now playing at Man Westwood, Man's Hollywood, and a theater near you. Anyway, if you want to get hold of me, please do. My email address is videonastiespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get me on uh, Twitter at orange underscore monkey. Or you can get me uh, on the website, videonastiespodcast.com or the uh, thelasthorrorpodcast.com where there's all sorts of content on there. Um, so we're kind of keeping it reasonably famous. Um, so we've done Friday the 13th, and now we're going to go to Pam Greer and her performance as Foxy Brown. So we're going to make a little step over to the exciting world of black exploitation. So until next week, take care. Hope you're all well, holding up in these troubled times. I'll, um, I'll see you soon. Take care. Goodbye. seen a video nasty i wouldn't i have far too much how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, you've never seen one i actually don't need to see visually what i know is in that film